0: Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you have given us in the Bible this book where you continually speak to us. Lord, we have to admit that you are better at speaking to us than we are at listening to you. And so we pray as we gather here this morning that you calm our minds, that you open our hearts, help us to truly hear from you And help us to hear both what your word has to say to all of us and help us also to be receptive to how your spirit prompts each one of us to respond. We pray all this in the name of our wonderful Lord and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This summer, Mac and I are working through the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, with all of you. We've come this morning to Isaiah 49. And in many ways, the whole section here in Isaiah focuses on this somewhat mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord. There are some texts that are more focused on that servant, some that are less. The text we're going to read this morning is really focused in on the servant of the Lord who comes to do the Lord's will. And as we see in the whole of Scripture, this servant is Jesus. Not that the first hearers of Isaiah would have understood that, but we, reading the Bible, looking forwards and backwards, can see that Isaiah here is pointing us toward Jesus. So as you hear this text today, hear this speaking, well, of Jesus, and also of us, and of all of God's people through all time. Let's read the word of the Lord from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations." Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, He has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God." And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Israel and bring back those to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of a swan. Shout for joy, O heavens, Rejoice, O earth! Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts His people and will have compassion on His afflicted ones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be- So in the late 19th century, 1895 or so, H.G. Wells wrote kind of the original time traveler story called The Time Machine. It's, it's kind of the prototypical story. It seems like most time travel stories go back to it. And in this book, there's there's this time traveler who's never given a name. He's just called The Time Traveler. And he invents this time machine, and, and then he jumps forward far, far into the future to, I believe, year 800-2701. I have no idea why Wells picked that year, but, but there it is. And so he goes forward, and he finds out that, that the human race at this point has split into two different types of types of people. And the Eloi live above ground in the forests and the plains, and they're, they're very happy people, but, but they're a little dumb. They don't really know how to do anything. They just kind of forage for roots and berries and just happily pass their days doing almost nothing. And then there's a second race that lives underground called the Morlocks, and they know about technology. They have all these machines under the ground, but, but they're kind of nasty creatures. And in fact, they eat the Eloi. So they come out at night, and they kidnap these happy, kind of dumb people, and bring them down and eat them. And that's, that's one step in the future of humanity, according to Wells. And then the time traveler jumps forward even more, and and he finds himself in this world that's populated by all these little gray kangarooish kind of people. And, and after a while, he realizes that's what humanity has become, these almost rodent-like little pathetic creatures. And then he jumps forward some more, and it seems like humanity is simply done, and a giant species of crabs has taken over the world. And then he jumps forward even more, and the earth becomes desolate. The sun grows larger and larger and enters the the last stages of a star's life and becomes a red dwarf and gives less and less heat. and, And bit by bit, the earth fades away. All becomes death. Now, H.G. Wells is telling a fiction story there, but he's also giving a story of the world, really, as he saw it. He was an avowed atheist. He was living in England in a time when the Industrial Revolution was happening. And more and more, there was this one group of people who were very well-off and had a very relaxed lifestyle, but didn't really take advantage of it. And another group of people who were pushed down and pushed down, but, but more and more, they were gaining wealth and power as they learned how to run the machinery of the Industrial Revolution. And all Wells could see as he looked to the future of humanity was a gradual fading out, ending in a red sun and an empty earth. And that's the story of the time machine. And it's a a narrative that a lot of, well, maybe some of us have believed at times. It's a narrative that sometimes feels like it fits with the world. And it's a narrative that certainly we'd have friends, neighbors, family members who would, even if they didn't like the details, who would sign up for that. But Isaiah today gives us a different story, and in, in a sense, Isaiah is a time traveler who's come to us, so we could say we've gone back to his time, and, and in this text, he tells us the true story of the long reaches of time, and of what the end will look like, and so today as we listen to this story from Isaiah, it is, it is a story that tells us the whole story of the world in some sense, but it's wonderful because it's a true story. And it's wonderful because it gives us hope instead of despair at the end. So the first movement in this story that Isaiah gives us is to tell us that the servant of the Lord will bring salvation. In the first six verses of this text, the servant of the Lord speaks and and he says, I am going to come. The way will be prepared. The Lord concealed me for a while, but the day will come. And remember, the, in the big story of the Bible, this servant is Jesus. When Isaiah wrote these words, he had some, some dim sense of what would come, but he didn't know all the details. So he's looking forward, we think, seven, 800 years, depending on when exactly Isaiah was written, and he's looking toward how God will bring salvation. And then he tells here in very short form what is kind of the story of, of the book of well, all the four Gospels and then the book of Acts, the first five books of the New Testament. And there are times in the Gospels when it seems like the servant of the Lord Jesus might say, this is not working. His disciples are not listening to him. There, there is just this real lack of receptivity to what the Lord is actually up to. But then, but then as we come to the end of the Gospels, there is this, yes, this trip down, so to speak, to, to despair and to death, but then Jesus rises again And he comes out of the grave and there is hope. And and then as Isaiah continues here, we see in the book of Acts that the light of Jesus Christ goes out not just to God's God's own people, to Israel, to that nation, but it, it goes out to the ends of the earth. The light goes and goes and goes and salvation goes to all people. The gospel goes out and out and salvation goes to the ends of the earth. And now, if you're familiar with the Christian story or, or you've been around much, this is not going to sound terribly profound, right? Of course, this is the biblical story. Of course. But how much do we think about how we, maybe we wouldn't need to have been included in the story, but we are there. When Isaiah 49 talks about light coming to the darkness and, and talks about salvation going to the ends of the earth, those people there it's talking about are us. We are in this story. And we have light and we have hope and we have salvation because of what Isaiah points us to. We'll come back to this point a little later in this sermon, but but I invite you to reflect on what your life would look like. And maybe you feel like this is how you live, or maybe you feel like this is how you have lived in the past, but what would your life look like without the salvation that Jesus brings? What would your life look like if Jesus had not come or if the good news of salvation had not gone out to the ends of the earth? What would that be like for you? So that's Isaiah's first movement. And then in 7 through 12, he moves to a little different picture. It's still related to salvation, but he broadens the picture out. And and he tells us the servant of the Lord will bring not just salvation, but also restoration. God's people will be set free from the powers of evil, but they will also be set free to live in the Lord's presence and and to live in the Lord's ways and to live how things would be if all the evil and all the darkness in this world was undone. And in verses 7 to 12, there's, there's a huge number of biblical references that we think Isaiah is picking up and just piling one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. And at one point this week, I thought of trying to list all the texts, but I, I cut myself back and cut myself back to just two. So we're going to talk about two Old Testament texts that, that sit underneath this picture of Isaiah that Isaiah deals with just briefly, but that really, I think, open up some deeper themes for us. And first, Leviticus 25 and verses 8 to 55 and even around that. And I'd encourage you to check some of these texts out later if you're interested in digging deeper. But this is the section of Leviticus where it talks about the year of jubilee. And that might not be a tremendously familiar concept to you, but the way the Lord instructs His people to live is is every seventh year to have kind of a, a year of at least partial rest, a year of Sabbath. And then every seven cycles of seven, on on about the 50th year, there would be this special year called the year of Jubilee. And that year was supposed to be a year, a whole year of gratitude and celebration and thankfulness and, and restoration. You see, the way the... And by the way, the year of Jubilee, as far as we can tell, was never actually practiced. God's people fell far short of His vision. But the way that the Israelite system was set up, at least in Leviticus, is that that when the people entered the promised land, every family got a certain area. They had their inheritance in the land. And if you ran into trouble, you might have to sell that land. You might have to to give up your family inheritance. Or if you really ran into trouble in the ancient world, you might even have to sell yourself or your family into, into indentured servitude, almost into slavery. And in most of the economic systems around Israel, once you did that, all of your descendants, all of your future was, was finished in terms of economic livelihood, in terms of freedom, in terms of independence, in terms of being able to provide for yourself. When you got to that stage of desperation and had to sell off your land or, or had to enter into a contract, well, you were a slave forever, really, and you never got the land back. But in the year of Jubilee, by the way the Lord told his people to live, everybody got their land back. Every 50 years there was this social and economic reset. And so if you sold your land, what you really did is you sold the number of harvests on it till the year of Jubilee. And if you, in some sense, sold yourself or entered into a contract for for labor, you did it for a certain number of years, but freedom would always come for you. There might be hard times, there might be lean times, but there was always that restoration time coming. And that's one story that Isaiah picks up on here, and and he picks up on it quite a while after those instructions were given in Leviticus, and the people probably would have known, yeah, that's never happened. But yet the Lord says, it will happen. The day will come when there will be a true restoration. Restoration. And in some small way, this happens in the the immediate future, a couple hundred years down the line when Israel is brought back from exile and and they get back in the land. But but even still, this is an expectation that looks still toward our future. The year of Jubilee is still coming. And then there's another story, another, another bit here that Isaiah picks up. And Psalm 23 is probably the clearest reference back to this when when the Bible talks to us about the good shepherd and about the pleasant pastures and about the land and about being home. Now I was, I was reflecting on how this would mean something. And I think since we're so disconnected from the land, it probably doesn't have the same kind of, same kind of meaning for us that it would have for Isaiah's original audience. So I want to take this to today a little bit and give you, <clears throat> give you maybe a bit of a picture of how this would sound. We were on vacation for a couple of weeks in Colorado recently. I have a lot of family who live there, and we were, we were up in the mountains. And the mountains are beautiful and amazing, and I, I grew up in Denver, so the mountains really speak to me in terms of how massive and how beautiful God's creation is. But I have a lot of family members who really grew up in the Midwest, and, and geographically for them, the Midwest is really what says home and what says prosperity and what says beauty. And so as I've talked to them over the years, we've had this ongoing conversation probably for decades, and I would talk about the mountains and how beautiful and amazing and just wild they are. And they would talk about, well, they would talk about the plains of Iowa and cornfields that go on and on and on and and all the cows and all the livestock and this sense of prosperity and this sense that there is always enough that you could never possibly run out of food because, because the fields will always provide. In the mountains, they might say, yeah, they're beautiful, but, but there's no food there. I mean, okay, you can hunt a deer, but really, how much, how much food, how much sustenance, how much life can you eke out of those barren cliffs? And on another day, on another Sunday, I might make a counter-argument for the beauty of the mountains. But, but for today, as we listen to this text, what the text is picturing for us is a barren mountainside absolutely filled with crops. This text is giving us a picture of a world transformed, of of a place where there was no food, where there was no possibility of sustenance, where you could not make a living, all of a sudden flourishing. The barren land just springing forth with life. And that is the kind of restoration that Isaiah is telling us is at the end of the story. And he's even saying that now, even now god will lead us through even though it may seem even though it may seem like a dry and dusty valley there will be days when the lord himself will lead us into life in unexpected ways even when the future looks hard even when today looks empty the lord is at work to restore us the servant of the lord restores all things the lord brings salvation the lord brings restoration and those are those are cosmic truths this is again the the story of the universe but for our last point today let's let's bring it home and let's ask the question what what do we actually do with this so the lord does this the lord does that well how do we respond and where isaiah lands and where we're invited to land is to rejoice in the lord Verse 13 invites us to shout for joy, to rejoice, to burst into song, because the Lord gives us His comfort and His compassion. You know, it's, it's possible that we could read Isaiah, and certain people certainly have read it that way, and, and maybe you might be feeling this at this point of, well, it's nice that there's this story way over here about the end and when all things will be well and all will be well and all will be well. Yeah, that's great. I'm living over here today. And how does this matter for today? And the Bible itself tells us that this matters for today. 2 Corinthians 6 picks up on this text in Isaiah 49, and I'm going to read the first couple verses there, and there's there's more there that I'll just summarize, but let me read the first two verses. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, And this is quoting Isaiah 49 now. In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This story in Isaiah 49 is not just an end time story. It's a story that the Lord himself, through his scripture, through the New Testament, tells us is happening right now. Now, we are in this day of salvation today. And now 1 Corinthians 6, and I'd invite you to to read through that and reflect on that. After it says this, it goes on, and, and what might you guess it would talk about? Maybe it would talk about the prosperity that God's people enjoy. Maybe it would talk about how easy our lives would be. Well, it doesn't. 1 Corinthians 6 goes on and it talks about how hard our lives as believers are. And it talks about how all these troubles have come and all these troubles are, are continuing to come on Paul, who wrote the first letter, who wrote that letter, and on God's, all of God's people. And, and it just doesn't end. There is this cascade of trouble. And yet with each trouble, the text tells us, the text tells us this is the day of the Lord. And so we rejoice and we shout for joy because God is with us and God is at work even in our hard times. And so even when we are in hard times, we have reason to rejoice. And I want to invite you to a thought experiment today and, and to think, and, and of course, what ifs. What ifs are never real, right? But let's, let's work this out a little bit. What if Jesus had never come? What if salvation had not gone out to the ends of the earth? What if God was not doing the work of restoration now? And, and what if He was not going to continue this work until all is made well? What would that look like? What would your life look like today? And maybe you're more maybe you're more on the edge with Jesus, or maybe you feel like your life is really dark and you're not sure God is there. And that's, that's fair. I think everybody has longer or shorter seasons like that. But imagine a life where all there was was darkness and that was, that was it. And if you are maybe closer to Jesus or feel like he's more involved in your life, think of what your life would look like without the comfort and the presence of the Lord. How would the years and the decades have been different if Jesus was simply not there? And now let's think not just about our own individual lives, but let's think about, we'll think about culture and society out there. And, and you can make a really good case, really, that Christianity laid the groundwork for almost all of the cultural, medical, political, technological progress of the last couple thousand years. And sure, some of it probably would have come along without Christianity, but an awful lot of it probably wouldn't have. So what would our lives actually look like if the Lord was not at work through his people to restore the world. Most of us probably would be dead, honestly. If you think of all the ways that medicine has stepped in over the course of your life, what would your life be like if none of those interventions were possible? And what would your life be like if you didn't have any kind of faith community? What would your life have been like over the years if if instead of having this Savior that we could turn to and this guide for how to live lives in good community with the Lord and each other with ourselves, what would our lives actually look like? What would your past look like if you didn't have the light of Christ? What would your future look like if you were rudderless and had, had only your own resources to throw yourself into? And now I recognize we probably all have a different emotional response to that. Some of us might, might really feel like, whoa, my life would be totally different. Some people might be more like, eh, eh, I don't know. What ifs are hard to say. But I think it's worth reflecting on how different the world is because of the work of Jesus and, and because of how everything has changed with the coming of the servant of the Lord. And that is for Today. And there's another text in the Old Testament, and I'm sorry, in the New Testament. It's Revelation 7. And there, there the Lord does more of the long-term, the long-term look toward time down the road, toward that day. And that day in the Scripture often refers to when Jesus will come and when He will usher in a new time. And there is this point in Revelation 7 when, when John, who writes that book, goes up and, and he sees what looks like heaven And there is this whole multitude from the whole earth, from all peoples beyond what he can count. And they all have white robes and they are singing praise and glory to the Lord. And here's how John describes what their lives are like. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is Isaiah 49 again. But it's Isaiah 49 worked out to the end of time and beyond when the sheep who was sacrificed, when Jesus Christ whose body was broken and blood was spilt for us, when the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, when he will bring us home and forever we will live in that land that is good beyond all expectation. There is hope at the end of the story, and so we can rejoice. And now I want to, I want to invite you to think about what story you're living according to. All of us have, a, have an internal story of ourselves, of our life, of the world that we're living according to. And, and it might be a story that really fits with the biblical story, or it might not. But I invite you to reflect on what story you're living according to. Are you living according to a story where, where you work everything out and everything is great? Because honestly, that probably ain't going to happen. Are you living according to the kind of story that the time traveler lived in, where, where things get worse and worse and humanity declines and everything is awful and we end with a dead earth and a dying sun? Or are you stepping into the kind of story that Isaiah tells us? And you know, we're all, we're all time travelers. We just all go one direction at the same speed, 60 minutes an hour, 12 months of a year. But we are all traveling forward in time. And if the biblical story is true as we believe it is, then we have thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of years and, and eternity ahead of us to celebrate the work of the servant of the Lord and to be drawn more and more up into his community. Today, as we celebrate the supper of the Lord, well, this is intended to be a sign. It's intended to be a foretaste. It's intended to be a pointer of Christ's salvation and of the restoration of all things. This is the feast of the Lamb, and it is the feast that we will enjoy with the Lord forever. And ever, someday. And so today, as we partake of this sacrament together, you are invited to to give thanks for the salvation the Lord Jesus Christ has worked. And you are invited and reminded that it is not, not just salvation from evil, but it is also restoration into all good things. In this meal, the Lord invites us to remember His work In this meal, He draws us up into His presence even now. And in this meal, He gives us hope for eternity. So today, shout for joy, rejoice, burst into song, because the Lord comforts His people, and He has compassion on us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your comfort and Your compassion. Lord, we pray that today as we hear Your Word and we celebrate Your Supper that through your spirit you do draw us into your presence. And Lord, we ask that you help your word not be for us today mere empty words that beat on us and have no impact, but instead let your word be to us food and drink. Through word, through sacrament, and through your spirit, we pray that you renew us. If we have been spiritually slumbering, we pray that you wake us up. If we are spiritually worn out and hungry, we pray that you feed us. And Lord, if we are already thriving in you, we pray that you help us to grow even stronger and to be your witnesses and to bring your light more and more to where we are and to the ends of the earth. Lord, we are grateful for your presence. We pray that you help us to rejoice in you. Amen.